Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 41 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Episode 41, I think that's the Tom Seaver edition. You know, eventually we're going to get over 100, and then we're going to have trouble making those kinds of comments about the number of our episode. You know what? I will worry about that problem when we get there. <laughs> All right, let's hope we don't uh, get canceled. I was going to say, like, I mean, you know, if if that's what we're really stuck with by the time we get to episode 100 of the National Security Law Podcast, which, by the way, we have to have a party for, I think. Well, uh, well forget that. What about our one-year anniversary? That I, I'm not great at math, but I think at 52, we'll pretty much be there. We've had a couple of bonus episodes, so I think even yeah, maybe yeah, like yeah. maybe 50. Okay. Uh-oh. We'll have to celebrate. Uh, we'll record an episode from some awesome local Austin outdoor, you know, taco and beer joint. Oh, so we're going to celebrate with completely indecipherable audio. <laughs> you know, how will it be any different from what we normally do? Touche. Uh, so, Bobby, here we are, uh, Tuesday, October 17th, about 310 Central Daylight Time. And boy, is it daylight. It is really fine weather outside. This is the time of year when it turns from, um, you know, somewhat challengingly hot in Austin, for those who aren't accustomed to it, to the time of year where as it gets worse everywhere else, it just gets better and better here. All the more reason to spend this time indoors with you, my friend. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. So uh, what are we going to talk about today? We have some breaking travel ban news. Uh, yeah, it's been a few weeks. Why not? I know, right? It's like, hey, uh, if, if the shoe fits. Okay, so travel ban and then... Um, we, we have a lot of stuff going on in the Al-Nashiri litigation in you know, Guantanamo. This has really turned into quite the military commission's focused podcast. Um, that is not what I would have guessed when we started, you know, back in January. I, you know, I think part of that is just sort of a paucity of what we might have thought of as the more conventional topics. I mean, as we've said before, the the sort of world of, of old school national security law and policy has actually been pretty quiet yeah. lately. Well, I feel like military commissions have been quiet for a while, and now we're just getting a lot of churn. So Nashiri gives us two separate issues. Although they may be about to be quiet again for a while, thanks to one of those issues. <laughs> True. We'll see. Well, it's, that's funny, right? So we're going to talk about two issues there. You'll hear what they are later. One spoiler alert. One happens early in the week, and it seems like it's going to open the door to uh, you know maybe some acceleration of the commissions. And then right on the heels of that, just because nothing can go right for long at the commissions, uh, something else happens. It looks like maybe this is going to freeze things up. Oh, yeah. it's, it's it's just the gift that keeps on giving. It is. All right. Speaking of which, we have other gifts to un. Uh, indeed. So we also had on Monday the Supreme Court granting cert in the Microsoft cross-border data transfer case. I think you you heard it here first that that was going to happen. Yeah, that was a, that was an important one to watch for this term. It combines with Carpenter to make this a term of technology disruption impacting the law. And, and Orrin Kerr. It is the uh, is the Orrin Kerr term. Yes. Just in time for him to leave D.C. Um, and then after, so we're going to talk a bit about the sort of significance of the case, what, what the stakes are, why it actually might matter. It's actually, I think, not as big a case as it might seem at first blush, but still a really interesting one about the role of the legislature in regulating cross-border data privacy, data transfer. Um, then we're going to pivot to, speaking of the legislature, Bobby, a new piece of legislation. Yeah, so there's a, a bill. This is the best acronym ever, the ACDC bill, the uh, Active Cyber Defense uh uh, Certainty Act, Active <laughs> Cyber Defense Certainty Act, ACDC Act, um, and it is it is a bill. Is it, is it, is it back in black? <laughs> I know. I, I really feel some obligation to insert. Also, you know, for those about to legislate, we salute you. How about that? Um, a representative Graves had been working on this bill for a while. Um, 
as those who follow this stuff might might recall that he had a really I thought a kind of a neat way of rolling out his first draft. He put it out there for public consumption, explicitly soliciting feedback. Um, this bill that's actually now been introduced clearly shows uh, an iterative process at work, and it's got its pros and cons. We'll, we'll talk about some of that, um, and then we'll move on to check in just to report in on the <laughs> developments, or perhaps we should say lack of developments in relation to the case we've been touching on the past four episodes, uh, now called ACLU v. Mattis. This is the as yet unnamed American citizen held as an enemy combatant in Iraq. It's going to be a short and uh, rather frustrated update. Uh, it'll be interesting one way or the other. Who knows? We'll, we'll keep one eye on our phones to see if anything happens while we're recording. How about that? Uh, I'm not holding my breath. Okay. Well, and then, But finally, speaking of, of things that are in the news today, in honor of the announcement of the name of the new Star Wars movie about Han Solo, which, spoiler alert, is going to be named Solo. I So I like that you say <laughs> that with a little kind of a pejorative tone. I, I think that's all right. It could have been so much worse. Anyway, uh, we thought we would do some some the intersection of Star Wars and national security law because I am sitting across the table from someone who uses the Han Solo Greedo confrontation, both the original version and the sanitized 1997 version, <laughs> to teach uh, uh, preemptive self-defense and constitutional law. It, you know, I think whenever you're thinking of the prize cases, naturally one's thoughts it, turn are, are to, to the cantina, to Moss Eisley. Absolutely, hundred percent. I mean, the, these are not the these are not the Civil War era naval blockades you're looking for. A more wretched hive of uh, theory <laughs> and, and doctrine and villainy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on that. Which, uh, by the way, I'll just say a quick plug. Karen, for my belated birthday present, took me last week to see the Austin Symphony Orchestra play the soundtrack to Star Wars while they while they while they uh, projected Episode Four. I was going to ask you about that. So, in the trivia section, I want you to give us a review of that. That sounded like a pretty fun event. Spoiler alert: the Rebels win. <laughs> Thanks. So you're supposed to wait. You know, the listeners don't have time to. I think there's out. a 40 year moving wall on. Yeah, on I movies. guess so. All right, I'll, I'll allow that. Um, okay. So let's so start with the, the travel ban breaking news. So so right as we were deep in our pre-show preparations, which I think consisted of of. <laughs> well, for me, that consists of going to get coffee. What do you do? <laughs> uh, check Twitter. Yeah. Um, and what did you find? And I found that Judge Watson in the district court in. Uh, Honolulu, that's on Oahu DOJ, just so we're clear, um, issued a brand new nationwide TRO. That's a temporary restraining order. Nationwide, eh? Paging Sambray. Paging Sambray. Um, basically putting on hold travel ban 3.0. This is the September 24th version. Um, even after the Supreme Court just last week dumped the first of the two pending cases challenging travel ban 2.0, so all of this is to just to say, um, Bobby, it keeps on keeping on. Now, what about um, there's there's been a little commentary already about the order pointing out that there, there's sort of a an unusual reference to sort of athletics in the beginning there. What's what's going on with that? So yeah, I mean, Judge, there's an interesting metaphor. I don't know if Judge Watson was deliberately trying to refer to the anthem protests and the broader controversy sounding them. Um, I think more, I, I, you know, I think maybe he was just trying to be too cute by half about how the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, that's true both on and off the playing field. And, you know, his basic holding, it's a 40-page opinion on a TRO, which, by the way, yeah. I've never heard of before. Um, TROs are usually... Short, yeah. Because well, they're temporary. You, usually, you don't realize it's going to be the subject of. You don't well, know in advance for a dead certainty that it's going to be the subject of intense 
national and global attention. But so here I think the two big substantive takeaways, Judge Watson relies exclusively on statutory analysis, right, that this is actually not a big constitutional opinion about uh, the Establishment Clause or religious discrimination. So what exactly is the statutory shortfall, according to So it's actually he's relying heavily on the Ninth Circuit's very similar statutory-themed opinion in the two-point case, uh-huh. which let's remind our listeners is still on the books. Um, <laughs> the Supreme Court last week when they dumped the first travel ban case, that was the Maryland case that right. went through the Fourth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit case from travel ban 2.0 is still alive because Section 6 of the March travel ban, this is the refugee provision, doesn't expire until a week from today, October 24th. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Ninth Circuit, unlike the Fourth Circuit, is still on the books. And the district court, Judge Watson, relied heavily on some of the analyses the Ninth Circuit offered in that decision about what the president can and cannot do under his immigration authorities to say even travel ban 3.0 runs into the same problems, doesn't have a sufficiently compelling national security justification, seems categorical, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to focus in on that, the first thing you said there, Mm -hmm. that it doesn't seem to have sufficient national security justification. That was something I picked up on my quick skim. Um, This highlights what to me is, for purposes of our show and our topic, by far the most fascinating and and to some extent, you know, challenging aspects of this litigation, this uh, clear reluctance to give any deference to the executive branch in its purported national security judgment. Now, we all understand the context of why, in this case, this isn't an obvious case for going down the way it normally would. I think we all agree that if you had just somehow presented this as a uh, you know Bush administration or Clinton administration or Obama or go on and on type of case where a judgment about a particular country was made to the effect that there wasn't adequate security vetting going on with decisions about who's coming in from that country, you would certainly predict that most judges, if not all judges, were going to give a lot of weight to the executive branch's assertion that that factual predicate had been satisfied. And it really is a signature of the Trump administration and the lack of credibility it has with at least some of these judges that um, far from, you know, not only they're not getting, they're not getting binding deference, obviously, they're not really getting any deference at all. In fact, you might even go so far as to say there's actually some skepticism, some anti-deference. To a point, I mean, I think, you know, listen, this is a TRO. And so I think we got to be very careful at the risk of being a Fed courts nerd, right? Judges are not supposed to look that hard, right, at behind the record in a TRO case. The whole point is, you know, This is not the injunctive. No, no. Have plaintiffs made a prima facie showing that I should freeze things for long enough to actually take a look at the record and look behind things, right? So so I really want to caution people. TROs are not merits determinations. Um, And given everything that's transpired over the last nine months, not hard for me to see how a judge, any judge, balancing the equities would say, putting things on hold while we think carefully about these questions is more compelling than all of a sudden letting the government go and put this into place, given how far we've come. All of that makes total sense, and and you would expect a short TRO opinion Quite. as a result. I, the 40-pager suggests <laughs> something a little bit more well, listen, I engaged mean, than that. I, I, right. I mean, anyone who suggests that there's not something about this being Trump going on, I think, is oh, yeah. trying to sell you something. At the same time, I mean, I want to say as, as emphatically and directly as I possibly can that I think it's not fair to then thereby assume, and I'm not saying you are, Bobby. I think yeah. some folks outside yeah. are. 
that it's not for us to thereby assume that these opinions are thus lawless. Oh, I agree. Look, we both are aware that some people have maintained that that basically there's sort of the, the mirror image phenomenon going on. The judges are just, you know, acting uh, ultra vires. Um, that's clearly, I don't think, the case at all. I think these are absolutely legitimate disputes. Reasonable minds can disagree, perhaps. But um, to suggest that the judges are being lawless, I think, is, is, is a bit silly. And so where does this go from here, I think, is a more interesting question, right? So um, just to rewind back to Travel Ban 2.0, um, right? So the government now has two options. They can wait for the TRO to be converted into a preliminary injunction, um, or they can try to get some kind of emergency relief from the Ninth Circuit. TROs are not supposed to be generally appealable. Right, because right? they're not supposed to, they're just a way station anyway. Right. Um, and so, you know, we're right back where we're to, with Travel Ban 2.0. Whatever happens procedurally, however these questions are answered, to me, the real takeaway from all of this sort of maneuvering and, and news is that, you know, dear Supreme Court, you may think you've dodged this bullet for the moment, <laughs> right. but the bullet is about to take a 180-degree turn, turn and come right back at you. I think it's right. I think when we were talking about this this summer, we sort of – when you were, I think, quite accurately predicting that there were features of the timeline that meant that the, the current round, the 2.0 round, wasn't going to go all the way, um, we nonetheless appreciated that the administration might decide to just leave it at that and having scored whatever points it was going to score, leave it at that. But it didn't. It, it's gone back to the well with 3.0. And so this isn't going to go away. This will have to eventually be dealt with. Um, and let me just say, and the, other, the, the last point I'll make, and then I think we could probably move on, is yeah. um, yes, it's a nationwide TRO. And so, right, Paige and our, our mutual friend, Sam Bray, um, the plaintiffs actually were pretty careful this time around to ask for somewhat more tailored relief. So, for example, the TRO doesn't cover North Korea. Um, and it doesn't cover one of the other countries on the revised list. I, it might be Chad, yeah. um, right? Not not because they don't have the same concerns about the president's authority, but because there's no there's so little immigration from those two countries that the plaintiffs couldn't suggest that there was an impact there. Interesting. Well, that makes sense. I don't think it. I, I don't think that does anything to. If you think there's something wrong with national TROs, no, of course. No, I mean the national part. I'm just yeah. suggesting that that insofar as it's knee jerk, you know, it's Trump so enjoying the whole thing. I actually think there's some nuance here once you peel away the course, layers. You might say it's it's knee jerk Trump. Let's enjoy the whole thing, but let's do it smartly and leave out well, this one bit so you can keep the focus on on the other countries. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think this yeah. is this is a real view on the merits. But but I want to underscore that it is incredible to have this persistent example of judges giving really no weight at all to the president's assertion yep. of a national security yep. need. And I don't think it's any surprise. I think this is this is uh, the, the damage, Trump administration yeah. reaping what it sowed. And and as 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 your friend and mine, Jack Goldsmith, has been pointing out for months now, um, the real danger of a Trump presidency, assuming we survive it, to the future of presidential power, right? That, That's that, right. that, that the precedents set these days, justifiable though I believe they very well may be, right, could be used to weaken the presidency as an institution going that, forward. That's exactly right. Okay, so speaking of going forward, let's go forward to the military commissions. Aye. We've got uh, two developments. Let's first knock out the de denial of cert in the Nashiri case, which we'd been previewing for quite quite a bit of time on this show. So as as predict, uh, once again, you heard it here first. We should, we should like you know. That's yeah. the name of the show. You heard uh, it here first. That's, that, is that the name of the show? It will be now. Let me get on Twitter. Hold on. A episode you say something on the air. I'll, I'll, I'll edit. Episode 41. You heard it here first. Um, <laughs> heard what? I don't know. They blow up the Death Star. Um, so the on Monday, I think not totally surprisingly, especially given the denial of cert in the Al-Balul case, the Supreme Court denied cert also in the Al-Nashiri case. Just to remind our listeners, um, Al-Nashiri is charged with, among other things, Wait, you just retweeted something. Yes. Well, <laughs> Matt Tate had a good comment that was exactly what we just said about how the, the big issue here is. Wait, how'd you know that? It was on your watch? I get alerts when Bobby oh, tweets. I, <laughs> good. 
while you were talking, I was uh, retweeting. Stop distracting me while you're tweeting. A good tweet from Matt Tate that right, was so, making that point. So Al Nashiri, um, basically the question is whether the defendant who's charged with, among other things, responsibility for the bombing of the USS Cole in October 2000 um, was entitled to challenge the jurisdiction of the military commissions to try that offense before the trial actually took place. Um, the jurisdictional claim, Bobby, I think you and I agree, is a substantial one, whether it's meritorious or not. And we both agreed that it would be far better to know now rather than waste all these resources if it turns out this shouldn't be prosecuted. But a divided panel of the D.C. Circuit held that instead the court should wait under something called councilman abstention mm-hmm. uh, and the Supreme Court without any noted dissents and with, unlike in Al-Balul, Justice Gorsuch participating, denied cert on Monday, meaning that Al-Balul is going to have to present his jurisdictional challenge um, basically in a post-conviction appeal. Many, many, and after our second piece of news about Al-Nashiri, many, many years from now. So so let's get to that second piece of news, and then we can relate the two. Uh, big news, uh, the civilian members of Nashiri's defense team have en masse resigned, and the uh, Brigadier General, who's the supervisor of the Defense Council's office, has approved their withdrawing from the representation, including their, quote, uh, learned counsel, close quote, which is the term of art for the death penalty specialist, uh, which by, by rule, they must have one on and the sta- team. And rule, statute, and probably constitution. That's right. So so what you've got right now at the moment is you still do have military defense counsel. One, a lieutenant. A lieutenant. Uh, hey, I've seen a few good men. That can go well. But in this case- <laughs> You can't handle the is, truth. <laughs> it is very likely that that person probably is in the midst of also trying to withdraw for the same reason. Steve, what is the reason? What's going on here? We don't fully know. Um, So this story broke Friday. Um, As usual, Carol Rosenberg from the Miami Herald was all over it. If you're not already following Carol on Twitter and in her writing for the Miami Herald, um, you're doing national security wrong. Um, We don't know because apparently the source of the dispute between the Defense Council and the government is classified. Um, all that we know from the public statement released by uh, Rick Kamen, who was one of the who was the learned counsel, one of the three civilian lawyers on Alan Sherry's trial team, is that there was some dispute between the government and the defense counsel about the monitoring of communications between um, the defense counsel and their client. That the defense counsel just could not have any confidence that all of their communications with their client weren't being monitored, and that they therefore, it wasn't just that they could and should withdraw, it was that under the relevant rules of ethics, they actually had to withdraw because they could not guarantee that they were able to convey information to their client in a manner that was confidential and protected from disclosure to the government. And so they had actually gone and gotten an ethics opinion from Professor Ellen Yarshevsky, uh, who I think is it Cardozo? Cardozo, yeah. Yep. Um, and, and Alan had uh, rendered the opinion that they had an ethical duty to withdraw under the circumstances. Now, this issue of possible uh, intelligence monitoring of attorney-client communications isn't a new one. This doesn't come from nowhere. This has been an ongoing concern. And earlier in the summer, um, if I recall correctly, General Caymans had uh, directed the defense counsels that they should not be meeting with their clients anywhere at Guantanamo. Which is a which is a long, <laughs> good luck is, with that. Which is a bit of an absolute problem, you know, in and of itself, uh, because of concerns that maybe some degree of monitoring was happening, despite a ruling from one of the military judges at Guantanamo that there shall be no such monitoring, right? And so, uh, one way to look at this is as sort of an escalation of an on, ongoing dispute where none of us on the outside knows the actual facts as to whether, in fact, there is any sort of you know CIA or other, you know, some sort of 
intelligence-focused attempt to keep an eye on what the detainee communications are, even when they're meeting with their lawyers. It, if I understand the record right, the Office of the Military Commission Prosecutors, General Martins and his office, have taken the position that there shouldn't be such monitoring, that the judges have ruled that there shall not be such monitoring, that the official U.S. government position is that there isn't such monitoring. And so there's there are a couple of possibilities. A, despite all that, there's monitoring, in which case there's a huge problem. Uh, and it's not just that there's an ethical problem for the defense attorney. That's really sort of the, the, the tail end of it. The front end problem is people are disobeying the court order. Uh, option op- Possibility B is, nope, it's a mistake. It, it's a, something they suspect, but they're wrong. It's not occurring, in which case this is an overreaction. Uh, possibility C is there, Steve, is there space here for some sort of, uh, well, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, that there's a murkiness to what something's happening, but it's not quite what people think it is? So, I mean, let me just stress this by saying everything's classified, so we have no idea. Yeah. Um, so uh, once possibili- one possible version of possibility C is that OMC, the Office of Military Commissions, right, General Martin's, the prosecution, um, believes everything it's saying. Exactly. And that Well, the, I, I will say, I, I feel duty-bound to say, I guarantee you Mark Martins believes what he's saying. Mark Martin, sure. I don't want to speak for every single yes. person in office, but I would certainly vouch for General yep. Martins. Um, and that some other government agency um, is involved in conducting covert surveillance. I mean, so, so for example, there was an issue with um, microphones hidden in the smoke detectors, right? And this is what led to the, the earlier the summer memo about not being at Guantanamo. Um, it could very well be that it's not OMC, that's putting those microphones in the smoke detectors and that's conducting this other surveillance. The problem is that from the perspective of the ethics rules, it doesn't matter which hand of the government is doing the monitoring. What happens is if the monitoring is happening at all. Right. And that, but that's the interesting factual question. So we're given to, we certainly are getting the impression from the statements made to the press that they have some undisclosable reason to think that something's still happening. Uh, I suppose, you know, when I think through, like, how should this unfold procedurally, it seems to me that the presiding judge should bring everybody in there and lay the wood on people until they get a clear answer to this. And then either, and either the answer is, this isn't happening, therefore you people need to get back to work, or it is happening and therefore there needs to be sanctions or some other um, sort of response that impacts upon the government. But either way, the answer can't be, all right, this has happened. I guess we're just never going to know. And well, and, let, well. And, let's, and, and let's be clear. I mean, the effect of this is to freeze the Nashiri case in its tracks. That's right. Nothing, nothing can happening. happen, right? Because without a learned counsel right. under both the rules for military commissions, the Military Commissions Act, and I would argue, although I think I'd get some pushback, yeah, Sixth the Sixth Amendment, yeah. um, without learned counsel, nothing. there can't be more hearings. There can't be more discovery. There can't right. be more pretrial preparation. Everything gets put on hold. Right. So I think what Which, we're Which, by heading, the way, yeah. in the same bloody week that the Supreme Court said, no, it's all good. We'll wait until after the trial's <laughs> over to decide the massive jurisdictional question hanging over this case like a sword of Damocles. Well, here's a question. Do you, I, I have no idea. Do you think that the defense team was waiting to see what happened with the cert grant? Because it's... No, because it happened, it happened first. beforehand, right? So the the so just to put the timeline in okay, context, that's good to know. That's right? Good to the know. the the resignations were apparently approved last Wednesday, so that would be the eleventh. Um, it took a couple days to get the statement cleared through pre-publication review, right? Because they had to make <laughs> right. sure the statement was kosher. The statement came out on Friday. Cert was denied on Monday. Um, but Bobby, a related question is: so if you're you know, our mutual friend, Michelle Paradis, right? If you're the civilian appellate counsel for Nashiri, do you now petition for a rehearing 
in the Supreme Court on the denial of cert on the ground that both first, first of all, the proceedings are completely frozen. So that whole thing about waiting for them to, <laughs> you know, kind of not going to work. And second, um, something sketchy is going on. And guess what, Supreme Court, you can help sort this out. Yeah. So two, two answers. One is, of course, if I were counsel, then as part of your duty of zealous advocacy, you're going to take what you can get. Sure. It's a, it, what you need for rehearing, right, is something different and new. Mm-hmm. Now, a trivia question, I know you know the answer. <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, last time such a move worked and you got reversal of the denial of cert and the, you name it, what is it? Boumediene versus Bush. Exactly, right? which was itself, if I remember correctly, like the first time in like decades or something that it worked. So could it be similar to the, uh, to the rehearing? Uh, could be. Um, do I think that actually this is particularly strong on the merits to – uh, no, because the timing issue, I, I'm pretty confident, will one way or the other, this is going to have to get worked out, and it's not just going to linger with the case in stasis for, you know, six months. Thoughts on that? No, I completely agree on that. I mean, I think I think not only one way or the other in the Nishiri case, but let's be clear. I mean, there's no reason to believe. Right, it's going to spill over. That, that whatever the, whether it's perceived or real, right, and we right. don't know the facts, right. right, whatever the alleged problem that led to this mass withdrawal is, um, there's no reason to think that it's Nashiri specific, right, as opposed yeah. to something that the government that, that the relevant government agency is or is allegedly doing in all of the military. That's right. Cases. So this is a threat to the 9/11 Commission case, uh, the a, 9/11 cases as well. This is a threat to the commission's period. Yeah, that's right. Right, and and I will say this. I mean, I think if this were happening before an Article Three court, I don't think you or I have any hesitation that the judge would have a furious in chambers conference where he rakes everybody over the coals and says what the hell is going on sure, how no are you letting, you know this is not this is not happening in my courtroom right i th- so i think that for all those reasons eventually not that long from now there will be a resolution but i think we'll have to read the tea leaves to figure out what it was either the defense team eventually comes back after some closed proceedings or there is some dramatic news otherwise but Bella said, i mean so so I don't know. I mean, so so I know the people involved, right? And I have no reason to think that anyone is lying, right? Um, whatever this is, it's not good, right? I mean, sure. this is, you know, the, I mean, this is this is further proof of whatever you think of the legal questions surrounding the commissions, the unique policy problems they raise compared to having all of these cases go through the Article Three civilian courts. It, it certainly is another example of the extra friction you get. No question about that. All right. So we'll be able to come back to this story once again, <sighs> Nashiri. It's, it's, um, it's like the song of the summer. It just stays with you and now into the fall. Second verse, same as the first. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but, uh, but speaking of the Supreme Court, in the same orders list that denied cert in Nashiri, the government on Monday also granted cert in, Microsoft, in the United States versus Microsoft Corporation, um, a case about that old chestnut, the stored community. Communications Act. The SCA, everybody's uh, most loathed statute to try to parse. It is really a doozy from the 1986 Electronic Communications Privacy Act. So this was this was on on a cert uh, petition from the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which had taken Microsoft's perspective on an issue that boils down to this: Microsoft executives in Washington may have the ability to call up the data requested in a warrant, a properly granted warrant, um, but. That practical ability doesn't answer the question if the data is being summoned from servers in Ireland. Ireland. Da, 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 da. Yeah, and so the idea is, well, if the if the company has architectured its system such that the data is being stored outside the country, then the idea is the fact that the company does have the practical ability to summon it to a desktop in uh, Seattle really is neither here nor there. You can't make it 
pulled across the border. Now, many a district court in the, in the interim and other circuits has taken the contrary view. I would say, I think we said this the other day, it's, it's analogous to saying that, look, it's like a habeas petition being directed to the Secretary of Defense. Um, the, the detainees held elsewhere, but it's within the control of the Secretary. The Secretary is in the Eastern District of Virginia. Therefore, you've got jurisdiction in the Eastern District of Virginia, even if what you're doing is having an extraterritorial reach through that person. That's the norm in habeas. Why not the, why not the norm for uh, data collection as well? So at least the Second Circuit said the answer is because of the unique language of the statute, right? So this is, again, not a constitutional case. This is strictly about Section 2703D, I believe, right, of the Stored Communications mm-hmm. Act. D orders. The, the D order. Um, not actually a warrant. Right, although it's sort of a quasi warrant. Well, yeah, I think it's best to separate it because you don't have to have the probable cause. True. I mean, um, totally yeah. agree. But but so the, the Second Circuit said, listen, guys, we find the government's position deeply compelling here, but we're bound by the statute, right? And the statute, as we read it, does not allow a district court to issue a warrant compelling the, sorry, to issue a D order compelling the production of data stored outside the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. Um, and I think one of the judges, was a Judge Lynch maybe, wrote separately to say, um, this is a real problem. Congress ought to fix it. <laughs> right. Right. Um, which listen, is a perfectly responsible thing for a circuit judge to do. Yep. Oh, yeah. It also, I think, raises the stakes to some degree of the Supreme Court granting cert because, right, the government presumably could have just run to Congress and said, hey, Congress, fix it. Instead, they've gone to the Supreme Court and say, no, in fact, the Second Circuit was wrong. Ooh, we could have some interbranch dialogue going on here. Maybe. That's crazy. That's old school. That's old school. Um, I also, though, I mean, listen, I'm sure our, I'm sure that folks listening to this are like, well, obviously, if, if you can issue a 2703D order to Microsoft, and if all that a Microsoft technician in New York has to do is summon the relevant data off of a server from Ireland while sitting at his desk in New York, that's within the jurisdiction of the New York court. Well, if that's true, I wonder, Bobby, if that has implications for the privacy rights of foreigners, right? If data can be accessed, not in other words, right? The, the, the modern sort of foreign intelligence surveillance law is premised on the notion that non-citizens whose data is outside the United States have no expectation of privacy in that data. If that, pri- if that data is being accessed in the United States, through U.S. servers. Isn't there an argument that this actually flips over? I don't think so. I think that if they were physically present in the U.S., well, of course, that would be different. But I think that we're what talking about— What if the data is what, what if, the, what if that, they who are accessing the data are physically present in the United States? What if the search takes place on U.S. soil? Right. Well, this is the question that, that FISA, right, the, the, the larger debate about FISA and territoriality presents. The original 1978 FISA structure itself builds in at least one scenario in the complex definition of electronic surveillance that— if you, if you meet that definition, you trigger the obligation to go get a FISA order before you collect. And, and there's one way, one pathway through that that really does kind of prioritize where the physical collection is taking place for certain types of collection. And it's always been an interesting question to ask, like, why should that really matter if the person, the target, and all the rest is overseas and it's a non-citizen? Well, the, your comment kind of raises the same question. I certainly don't think we're going to get any gesture. No, no, no. no, no. But, it, but it's a great conceptual question to ask. Um, it, it is possible, I suppose, that what you might see is some last-minute tweaking of whatever bill is eventually going to move Section 702 over the next two months, which, Gosh. you know, looming, as everyone listener knows, sooner or later, we will have movement on the 702 issue. Will we, though? Or is the Congress that's at the last... Be, oh, whoops, we forgot about it. Clean reauthorization, go. I, I think that if they do get to the point where they just don't want to spend time actually grappling with it, they'll do a two-year kick-it-down-the-road type thing. But what you might see is some last-minute uh, deal-making to say, all right, well, among other things, let's clarify the extraterritorial reach of the D order. 
uh, perhaps as part of a, a larger reform uh, package deal, if you will. So who knows? In the meantime, big case to consider. Um, and, while- and, and just and together, I mean, we've talked before about the Carpenter case, about the third party doctrine that the court's going to be hearing. I believe uh, the argument's now been set for early December okay. or maybe late November, like the 29th I of didn't November. Know that, but that sounds about right. Um, it just, it just, it's, it's fascinating to me. I mean, so, so Oren made this point, Bobby, on Twitter um, that in both Carpenter and Microsoft, you have the Supreme Court granting cert in the absence of a split. Um, on major questions in Carpenter on which the government won below and in Microsoft on which the government lost below. Seems like the Supreme Court has sort of privacy and cross-border data transfers on the brain. No, I think, and rightly so, I think these are good illustrations of you don't always have to have Students, a uh, circuit split before the Supreme Court's going to get interested. If it's uh, of, justices, if it's of sufficient national importance. Oh, like whether military commissions uh, can try domestic offenses. You beat me to the punch. I was going to say oh. sometimes you sometimes you ought to jump in because we need to settle things. In any event, we'll see if those cases actually get us rulings on the merits. Um, I, I oh, I think I mean yeah. listen, there's no vehicle problem in either yeah. Carpenter or Microsoft. Yeah, so so right. you know, I think the court's in for a penny, in for a pound. I hope so. I'm actually quite pleased. I think this is a we're we're certainly overdue the time. These are ripe issues. Although although as 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 I mean, Oren is fond of pointing out, the Stored Communications Act is not exactly, it has not necessarily held up well to technological innovations in the 31 years since it's passed, I'm not sure the justices are going to really enjoy applying a 31-year-old statute to the current world of, of data transfer. I can well imagine that in drafting whatever opinion comes out of the Microsoft case, that there are more than a few shots taken or a few statements made to try to get Congress to come back to the table on this. Quite. Um, and, and rightly so. It's a 1986 statute. And if you haven't spent time with it, you should. It's I mean, quite let's just put it this way: um, that statute is so old. The Mets How won the world. The Mets won the World Series the year it was enacted. Oh, that is, that is a great way. Oh man, I can just picture Mookie Wilson now and Bill Buckner and Bill Buckner. Oh, ouch! All right, it let's, gets by the bag. It gets by Buckner. <laughs> the Mets are going to win the ball game. Let me just digress for a second. What, what a shame! You know, Bill Buckner had a great career, yeah. but boy, that's all most people are going to remember. Yeah. I mean, so so j- this is a, a super quick tangent, right? All right. Just to be clear, I think history has been unkind to Bill Buckner. By the time the ball rolls through his legs, the game was tied. The real culprit of the collapse of the Red Sox in the bottom of the 10th inning is Bob Stanley. Okay? Um, the wild pitch tied the game. No, that's right. right. That's and right. by it that point, over then. the home team rallying from two runs down in the bottom of the 10th inning into stave off elimination, yeah. the Mets would have had all of the momentum going forward oh, yeah. in that game. Buckner was the afterthought. Bob, the person who really, really owes Bill Buckner a solid <laughs> is Bob Stanley. That's, that's right. That's right. He's taken all the, the uh, historic hit. Well, speaking of technology and— Just how Bartman took it away from Alex Gonzalez, the Cubs shortstop who booted the double play ball that really allowed that inning to blow up back in the 2003 NLCS. Nice reference. Nice (laughs) comparison. Uh, Speaking of of segues that don't quite make sense. Right. So let's talk about the active uh, active, uh, Cyber (laughs) Cyber (laughs) Defense Certainty Act. Act, The ACDC Act. Right. Okay. So this is a great— an interesting and fascinating piece of legislation. Let me give it just a very quick overview. This is not going to be that much in the weeds. But the idea here is to alter the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, 18 U.S. Code, Section 1030, which is the sort of the the centerpiece of uh, criminalizing unauthorized or excessive 
access to someone else's computer system. Um, you know, dirty deeds done dirt cheap, that kind of stuff. Yeah, very nice. You just jump in with those references whenever you go. I'm, I'm ready to go. Steve, if you can come up with another good one, you can have a drink on me. So um, the idea is to carve out a couple of exceptions that would open up a little space for the victims of a, of a data breach, of a hack, to take a certain set of actions that sometimes are described as active forms of defense. Um, and these run the gamut from relatively unobtrusive reconnaissance type activity. The point being, you're going to respond as the victim by trying to reach back into someone else's network, either to figure out who they were, where they were, where your data went, or maybe more aggressively, um, deleting the data that was taken from you and exfiltrated and stored on some other server, going in there and deleting it. Shaking or, them all night long. Or, <laughs> shaking them all night long. Or um, at the most extreme, doing something more uh, more punitive and destructive mm -hmm. to them. And, maybe putting them on a highway to hell. Oh my gosh, there's no end to the, to the opportunities <laughs> here. Um, so <laughs> I'm, tr I'm struggling mightily to keep my mind from Sorry. spiraling down the song list <laughs> so I can stop. respond in kind. <laughs> Um, so the question is, how much of this as a policy matter is desirable? And then secondly, even if you had a pretty good idea of where you wanted to create a little space where the victim would feel like they could, without running the risk of liability of prosecution under the Computer Fraud, Act, Fraud and Abuse Act themselves, where you might want them to go, can you, really, can you really design statutory language that would open up the aperture enough to provide them the certainty that's necessary for either outside counsel or the general counsel to turn to the CEO and say, if you authorize this responsive measure, you're, you're truly not at any significant risk. Um, the statute proposed by uh, Representative Graves has, in Section 3, an opening uh, in the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act that would be for attributional technology. Now, I like this idea a lot. It says, in effect, that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act won't apply if what you're doing is uh, creating a beacon or some other bit of code that if you have it on your system and someone else happens to take that document or that file that contains your your beacon code, this is like the the paint bomb, Steve, and the when somebody robs a bank and right, you drop the, the paint the, bomb right, in, yeah. right? Like they took it from you. You didn't you didn't go into their system to inject it into there, um, and you know they can't complain when this helps the authorities track them down. So that that I think is is uh, that's a new part that wasn't in the original draft. Like that very much. Seems pretty reasonable. There's some particulars about how to execute the writing of that exception, but never mind that. Um, but then the statute goes on to try to also create an exclusion for a broader set of responses. Um, it gets a little bit tricky, but the idea is it will be a defense to a Computer Fraud and Abuse Act prosecution if uh, an action that falls into the category active cyber defense measure is used. Um, notably, this would not be an immunity from civil suit. So this is purely just dealing with the prospect of a law enforcement action. So that that's an interesting question. Uh, who gets to do it? Anyone who is, quote, a victim of a persistent unauthorized intrusion. Now, I've previously commented that you, you got to have a more of a definition of the term persistent. That's that's too vague. We don't know who's in and who's out. But you get the general idea. They're, they're trying to avoid the de minimis trigger here. In any event, let's assume we've got that covered. What is it you're allowed to do on this measure? An active cyber defense measure is defined to be anything that, you're, that you, the victim, uh, either yourself do or you hire someone to do that consists of accessing without authorization the attacker's computer to gain information that will, A, uh, establish attribution. Okay, well, that's not unlike the beacon idea. Uh, this has to be shared with law enforcement and other U.S. government agencies. Uh, B, 
Uh, it will disrupt continued unauthorized activity. So that's a little more aggressive. You're going to have an effect on the machine, on the server, elsewhere. Or C, uh, monitor the behavior of an attacker to assist in developing future intrusion prevention or cyber defense techniques. Uh, but this is, but none of this can be something that will intentionally destroy or render inoperable information that's not your information that happens to be on that other system, or that will recklessly cause physical injury or financial loss. Uh, third, that will create a threat to public health or safety, which probably needs to be defined a little further. Hmm. And the list, the list starts going on and on. So you get the kind of picture. There's a bunch of carve-outs. Um, the action here is not the uh, reconnaissance, gathering information type stuff. It's, it's the opening of an opportunity to disrupt the ongoing attack and, and whether the statute, with its exceptions, really works to create a window where you could do something that would stop someone who has access to your system, that's not yet clear to me. I want to parse it a little further. Um, it does seem designed to allow you to delete off someone else's server files that were stolen from you, which I think is that's the thing that is of most interest in a rapidly developing scenario like this. Now, I think we've said enough to describe it. I think one of the most interesting things here is a point that uh, Kristen Eikenser, our friend at UCLA Law, has raised on Just Security today, where she says... Heard, I've heard of that blog. You've heard of that. Uh, we've, we should all check it out, along with Lawfare. So this is uh, a reaction to a part of the draft bill that says, by the way, um, in order to do this, you have to, before using your cyber defense measure, you need to notify the FBI's National Cyber Investigative Joint Task Force, lovingly known as the NCI-JTF, you got to reach out to your friendly neighborhood NCI-JTF and uh, let them know basically what you're proposing to do here. And Kristen points out that um, this maybe converts what would otherwise be a private action that might have an international effect, perhaps even a, uh, an effect that the other country might complain of as a violation of sovereignty on some system in their territorial jurisdiction. Uh, she says this might have the effect of making it become the de facto uh, responsibility of the United States under the Articles of State Responsibility. So she's pointing out that on one hand, it sounds like smart policy to get the government involved in, in somehow screening these measures. But she's making the point that the more the government's involved in screening the measures a private company might use in pre-approving some particular measure, the more you can begin to make the argument that the U.S. government's on the hook should the other nation decide it's an international wrong and want to take countermeasures in response. You know, for what it's worth, and I'll, I'll post it more length about this later on Lawfare, uh, I, I don't think it's at all clear that it actually rises to that level of state direction and control or engagement with what's going on, but it's certainly an interesting observation and something that the the next round of revisions on this bill probably has to take account of. Certainly. And I mean, I'm all, all for this kind of interesting back and forth about it. I mean, this seems to be a good example of a bill that's actually benefiting from this kind of feedback. Yeah, I got to say, I mean, I think this whole thing is, I'm not saying this restores one's faith in Congress nope. by any stretch, nope. nor that this is exactly what needs to be done. But, but it is actually this process where there are re people really engaged in the substance of this bill. I know that Representative Graves also I mean, had a, uh, a conference in Atlanta, brought people in to work on this further. This is this is how it ought to be done in general. Here, here. Yeah. Even, right. Whatever the substance is. Exactly. Now, lightning round. Uh, one last thing. Oh, uh, gosh. One last John thing. Doe. John Doe. So um, John Doe, the American citizen being held as an enemy combatant in Iraq, 
we're led to believe. Um, Bobby, no real news no. since our last episode. And so I don't recall if this happened before or after. The, in the ACLU's habeas petition— They filed a, they filed an emergency motion, right, for an right. order to show cause. The, what but I not the it, one I asked for. No, a slightly <laughs> different one, right? But so I think it was— um, on Thursday, right, they filed an emergency motion for an order to show cause why at least the name shouldn't be disclosed, right? Well, well I thought they also asked for uh, council access. Yep, yep. And, why, and why they shouldn't be allowed to, to contact John Doe. Right. Um, the government, to my knowledge, has not responded. No, I think that we have not reached the deadline for their response yet. Um, and Judge Chuckin hasn't done anything. Yeah, this is sitting there. It, you know, it is very fascinating to speculate on the possibilities. We've canvassed the possibilities endlessly on prior episodes. I think we'll just let it lie for now until we get a further substantive development. Yeah, but I'll just I'll just repeat something that I said over and over again on today's episode of the Lawfare Podcast, where where Ben and I had at it on the question of how alarmed you should be by this case. Every day that passes without any progress and any development and any movement toward actual adjudication of the legality of this man's detention to me, is that much more problematic. I think once the petition was filed, the, the question's been put, but there is a calendar that comes with it. Um, this that could easily be expedited by a sufficiently motivated district judge, and, and it has not been thus far. Could be, but it's also possible that we're going to find out quite soon what the yep. judge's view on this as a result of the order to show cause motion. Again, that they need to find out. Has the family as next friend I, I, listen, already been the The, the relevant questions haven't changed from the last time we talked about them. I'm just surprised that it's been a week and they still haven't been answered. Yep. yep. Um, and and just to sort of, I don't know. I as 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 Bobby knows, I've been in a bad mood all day. And <laughs> and, and part of why I think I've hit it pretty well on the first forty four minutes of you of did, our show. but I, I was determined to draw out your your anyway. No, it was coming anyway. I it's it's <laughs> just I. Like at any other moment in my professional life, and and your you know your career is a year or two longer than mine. I just feel like all of the things we've talked about today, right? The the developments in Nashiri with mass resignations by the Civilian Defense Council, the continuing plight of this detainee without any real progress in the courts. These all would have been like big headlines in major media outlets. And whether it's because there's just too much else going on, or whether it's because our interests have pivoted. There's just not interest in these topics. Well, look, there's no question there's a competition in the bad news category that's pretty fierce. I will say, you know, I, I think this, it, it could turn out to be that the Trump administration is really going to commit as a matter of policy to trying to use military detention in the case of an American citizen. But I think from what we know, the public record, the only fair reading is this situation arose, was kind of thrust upon them, and they are trying to figure out how to get this guy into the prosecution system. And it's not necessarily their fault or lack of effort on their part that they don't have the case yet. No, no, and I, I, I have not. Again, I don't think anyone, there's no reason to suspect that anyone here is acting with nefarious yeah. motive. Um, that doesn't, it, that, if anything, that makes me even more alarmed that solely through, you know, inertia, we could be five weeks in without even the beginnings of, of resolution. I, I don't think you should be, I think you should view it as more or less a comforting factor that this isn't some policy initiative by the administration. That would clearly be a more serious situation. All right, so if you're scoring at home, it's Bobby and Ben, two, Steve, one. <laughs> but maybe your one counts as like five. It's well, very... I am heavier than both of you. <laughs> although although Ben could take both of us down. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Good. <laughs> All right, let's let's turn to a happier topic. Let's talk Star Wars. Star Wars. So, so big announcement from Ron Howard today, right? the the I'm lo I've lost count the tenth Star Wars movie right because Last Jedi is the eighth episode plus Rogue One plus the new one uh, so I think uh, this is the tenth no, this is this is nine right 
Uh, it's ten because you've got you've got the the original se- the, the the original three, the really bad yeah, first I was three. Say, do we have to count the prequels. Um, and then we've got ep- the Force Awakens episode seven. Seven. Rogue One eight. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. right. Last, Last Jedi, Jedi nine. nine. So this movie, which we now know is going to be called Solo. 10. Yeah. So I think I said last time or the time before that I was really a fan of Rogue One. As was I. So I like the idea of the one-off model because it frees you from what, at least judging from Force Awakens, could be the choking, the choking effect of felt obligation to adhere to canon and recreate and relive things and basically take no risks that are interesting. I'm sorry. Am I being too... uh, Harsh on the Force Awakens. Well, I guess they, I guess they took a risk when they destroyed all those trees, right? They really pissed off the environmentalists on Star Killer Base. <laughs> Jeez, um, I, I, I thought it was pretty ham-handed. I'm, I have higher hopes for the Last Jedi, but we'll see. I have uh, higher hopes for Solo, although not by the title. Anyway, but so so we thought we would do two quick things, right? The first was to give our 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 rough subjective rankings of the nine Star or the eight Star Wars movies to date because we haven't seen Last Jedi, and the second was to sort of talk about Star Wars and national security law. So. Rankings first? Rankings for sure. Let's just real quick. I'll, I'm not sure I'll run through all of them, but I will say that I, f- I feel like you've got to give the number one spot to the original A New Hope, to the original Star Wars. Um, I would follow that. So we, we haven't disagreed nearly enough on today's episode, <laughs> but boy, are you wrong. Uh, how, c- how could the original be anything but number one? Now, Empire Strikes because, Back is because a close there's, second. Because I can, as, as someone who just saw the original again, Right, this time with a live symphony orchestra performing the score, there are long swaths of the original where nothing happens. Like the 15 minutes when R2, D2, and C3PO are wandering the deserts of Tatooine. Character development, baby. That's character what, development. What is developing about their character other than that they're 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 droids that don't do well in the heat? Exactly. And how and how nice is it that this was at a time when it was okay to make a movie that didn't have to have constant, you know, reinforcement, action, action, action. It was okay to have a long drawn out spot to accentuate the drama later on. Listen, there's plenty of moments in Empire Strikes Back where there's no drama and action and it still moves pretty well as a movie. I will say, I, so I, I don't really feel it doesn't move well even in the dragged out scenes in part because it's conveying to you a real sense that the plot's not rushed. The very things that make Force Awaken Awakens so painful how you just jump right into the next development and it just feels like they're checking all the plot Listen, boxes. There's no question. Go. So so I think I think you and I are of the view, right? That in whatever order, the original three to wit four, five, and six, right, are at the very worst three of the top four, depending upon where you put Rogue One. Exactly so. Right? Um, that the sort of prequel three Right, are probably in reverse, reverse order. order. Yeah, absolutely. Next, and that the Force Awakens is at the bottom. Oh, I'd put it. Oh, I think it was better than uh, Phantom Menace. Really? At least there was like original plot elements in Phantom Menace. I, I got one thing to say to you, Jar Jar Binks. I have one thing to say to you. <laughs> How are we gonna blow it up? I don't know. We'll figure it out. I think there's nothing lower on the scale than Jar Jar Binks. Although judging from the preview. Of the last Jedi, there's, there's, a, there's, there, a, there's a funky parrot pigeon looking there thing. There was some kind of thing. There was some kind of creature in there. Anyway, so so all right. Well, I just uh, Force Awakens was so disappointing. Like so, Phantom Menace yeah. wasn't disappointing. It was just bad. 
right? Oh, Whereas Force oh, Awakens, I thought it was, I, it was I had such higher, I had such higher hopes about the Force Awakens. So I was, I was the reverse. I, I, I had no idea. I didn't know how mm. bad it could be until F- Phantom Menace. That was more of the betrayal. Now, I think on a more serious note, I think it's always fascinating to look for ways in pop culture you can test out or tease out in class uh, national security issues. So, Steve, the other day in con law, uh, we'd reached <laughs> the point in my chronological, uh, chronologically dominated syllabus. We were in the Civil War, and we got to the prize cases. And friends and listeners, uh, the prize cases, of course, is the iconic Supreme Court uh, Civil War decision determining uh, or grappling with the distribution of war powers between Congress and the president, given that the, uh, the, the petitioners uh, in, who, had, who had lost in these admiralty cases were arguing that the lack of a declaration of war meant that, therefore, the seizure through blockade of their ships must have been invalid. And far from, see, far from fleeing from uh, any judicial responsibility to interpret the commander-in-chief clause versus the declare war clause and saying where the legal doctrinal lines are, the court embraced that rule and said, oh, yeah, we'll tell you. And they introduced what amounts to an offense-defense distinction. Hey, if America's going on offense, that's the job of Congress to authorize. So a big win for Congress on that. But if America's on defense, if we've been attacked, it's not only the authority of the president to use the military in response without waiting for Congress, it's the duty, as the court said. And if you Uh, have neither offense nor defense, you're the New York Giants. (laughs) <laughs> well, wait, didn't they win the other day? Yeah, exactly. Perfect, typical Giants. Just when you give up, they're like, oh, wait, we actually are a somewhat decent football team. They do peak late, I guess. Uh, well, so, you know, better the prize, never than the late. prize cases is, is pretty straightforward as an offense-defensive matter. So what's fun is I to, thought this was trivia. Yeah, well, let's get in there. So it gets, it gets fun when you start to problematize it a little bit and ask the students to test their intuitions as to what counts as defense. And so I always run through this same set of hypotheticals. Um, I usually have some kind of military action between the United States and Canada with pictures of Mounties, you know, invading the Catskills or something. Um, And the idea is to tease out what people's intuitions are about when anticipatory self-defense really isn't defense anymore. Um, And I found myself in class the other day, Steve, uh, trying to make the point by illustrating. I I wanted to claim that most people think that if, if it's clear and imminent enough that you're about to be punched or shot at, then it's an act of defense to response. And, of course, my illustration I came up with on the fly was, you know, like at, at the cantina when Greedo's about to shoot Han Solo and Sean just, uh, Han Solo just blows him away. And, and then, of course, that led to a discussion of how George Lucas uh, bodlerized the damn film and reissued it by changing it and having Greedo shoot first point blank. Han executes a uh, neck-breaking uh, CGI kind of neck-twist move to dodge the laser and then fires in a clean act of self-defense. And I thought that nice, that the sense that George Lucas must have had that uh, it's a little fuzzy whether it's we, good. We, we might not like Han if he shot first. So, yeah, and, and let's just be clear. Maybe it's the name of the episode. Han shot first. Done. Done. So, All right. All right. So what about you? Is there anything in Star Wars you could use as elsewhere in Star Wars you could use as a teaching foil? Well, there are some human rights violations. Um, <laughs> so I believe that when the Death Star blows up Alderaan, that is probably an attack on a protected civilian target. I mean, after all, Leia just told them, we don't even have weapons. So, okay, so I, I completely agree there's something wrong there. However, I object to characterizing it as a human rights violation as opposed to a violation of the law of interstellar armed conflict. Interstellar armed conflict. Uh, uh, Lyak. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, gosh. Which, as we all know, under the, the doctrine of Lex Specialis, displaces IHR. Uh, I I H R L whatever it is uh, intergalactic in humanitarian law unless of course we uh, have them kind of harmonized and get to the same result but I think we all agree 
it's wrong to use the Death Star to attack a defenseless planet. Totally. Now, what Very if wrong. what if though there was a military base on that planet? Then it might have been a grossly disproportionate use of force under international intergalactic humanitarian law. Oh, this is so good. Oh, this is really not. Right, anything else we can draw out of this? There's interrogation scenes. We don't really get to. See, well, we get to see him in The Force Awakens. I, I actually. Well, so right. So Kylo Ren, of course, tortures. You know. Yeah. Uh, 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 what's her name? Ray. Ray. Uh, I think in general, so I was con- conflating my my new Star Wars movies. Right, right, right. Um, you know, I wonder if a, is a lightsaber a a a you know a, a weapon that is consistent with the the use in Bellow? Well, sure, because it's an elegant weapon, and it's a defensive. As as the Jedi are so fond of telling us, it's for defense. <laughs> I think I think clearly you have a, a certain degree of precision with that weapon. Um, I think pretty much all the the weaponry you know, analogizes for the most part, except for the Death Star, which you could analogize to nukes. Um, everything else looks a lot like it's modeled on yeah. kind of conventional navy, very very naval. You, well, you've got armor on land, right? So, armor, that, but but in the in, in the skies, it's very naval. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, right down to the admiral. Indeed. Um, other, it's example, a trap. <laughs> it's a trap. I can't think of any other good ones. Although I would encourage listeners, if you're thinking of any of the Star Wars films and you see a good uh, legal issue playing out there, even if they don't, they obviously don't treat it as such. There's no Jags in either the Imperial forces you will notice or the Rebel forces. Yeah, where where are the Jags in Star Wars? Uh, they killed all the lawyers. Um, well, that's what you do first. All right, so so this is a good a good excuse, Bobby, to remind folks that they really should be tweeting at us. Three different ways to tweet at us. You could tweet directly at the podcast. It's at NSL Podcast. Or if you prefer, tweet at Bobby, at Bobby Chesney. And since I get tweet alerts when Bobby tweets anyway. Um, <laughs> and then if you're, really, if you're really desperate, you know, I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. Um, we also would love for folks to spread the word because, man, you know, what better thing is there to do than to sick us on your friends? That's right. We really we really do need uh, more listeners. Please help us we, out. We don't that. need more listeners. Oh, we but do. Yes, I hunger we for want, it. We want, we yearn. We want more listeners. You can't always get what you want, but okay. you... Sometimes give what you need. So that's where I'm focusing. I need more listeners. And uh, we need you to go on uh, iTunes and give us a review. Or your favorite podcast platform. Or your favorite podcast platform. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. But in any event, leave five stars. One last one. I'm going to say this again next week because I really wanted to plug this. And I just remembered to do so. Mike Duncan, the fabulous Mm. podcasting uh, pioneer from the history of Rome and now the series Revolutions. His book, The Storm Before the Storm, is about to be published pre-orders matter for this sort of thing. If you like Roman history, or if you don't really know about Roman history and you're curious what the late Roman Republic looks like in relation to our own times, and you just want a really accessible, fun read that digs into sort of the period right before Caesar, um, this is the book for you, The Storm Before the Storm. Pre-order it. That will help Mike a lot. And I strongly recommend you listen to his podcast as well. Because when the Visigoths came over the seventh hill... That's a long way. That, that's going to be a sequel way down his list. This, <laughs> this is this is Sola and Marius stuff. I was just thinking about the like Gracchi. I, I was thinking more about the uh, uh, Star Trek Next Generation episode, Best of Both Worlds, Part One. Oh, most impressive. When Jean Le Picard's worrying about, I wonder what the Romans thought when the Visigoths came over the, the seventh, seventh hill. hill. Well, let, let me let me close with this. I think you would in particular like Storm Before the Storm mm. because the major theme is, and this is of course to, to the classicists is all familiar stuff, but um, part of what what was the poison in the veins of the late Roman Republic, it was it was the breakdown of adherence to norms, hmm. to uh, conventions and norms. How untimely and unrelevant to the to the quiet dogmas of the distant past versus our stormy present. On that note. Uh, we'll be back in black next week. <laughs>
I got you there, didn't oh, I? Did I? I thought I was out of the woods. I nope, was wrong. nope, never, ever, ever. Thanks, everybody. We'll I talk s- to you next week. I salute you. Adios. Stay safe out there.